of God's Word. We're in John chapter 5 this morning, so if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. John chapter 5. Father God, I thank you for the beautiful sense of your presence this morning. Lord, your presence is just so... um, Lord, we just long for it so much. There's nothing like it. There's nothing to substitute for it, Lord. Our own programs, our own gifts, our own... All that we do means nothing without your presence. And I pray that that presence would continue as we look at your holy and inspired and infallible word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you have ever felt stuck in your life. Have you ever felt stuck Maybe as a kid you were doing your homework and you felt stuck. I can't do this sum. I, these, I can't spell this word. Maybe you got stuck in a tree as a kid. I got stuck in many trees. I, I loved climbing, but I wasn't so good at getting back down once I'd reached the top. Maybe you've got stuck in traffic. I was rushing to meet. I was heading to Newbridge County, Kildare, I was meeting a friend the other morning, uh, two Friday mornings ago. At, uh, I'd meet him in, in Bambridge at 7 o'clock and I got stuck behind a tractor on the road to Bambridge and, and, uh, or maybe you got stuck behind a learner driver I got stuck behind a learner and a tractor and I have to say some words were coming to my mind that weren't even in the King James version of the Bible our, our little boy who's five every time he sees a learner in front of us he goes oh, dad a learner and he, he, I don't know, he's got that from his mother obviously um, or he even goes oh, dad our driver and uh, and he knows we're going to be stuck for a while um on one of our our first dates we went up to the north coast to port stewart we went down to the strand beach and i have a car that's rear wheel drive um which is wonderful german engineering unless there's sand or snow and uh, some of you will know that and, and we went to the beach we went for a lovely romantic stroll when we got back to the car we couldn't budge um as much as i tried the wheels kept spinning the harder i tried the deeper we got becky thought it was some elaborate ploy to keep her in the car on the beach all night so i could have my wicked way with her she should be so lucky um and we we didn't know what to do because the beach was about to close and we were stuck we were stuck we were stuck and we couldn't go anywhere and these guys came along and we dug under the wheels and we got the you know the mats from the car and we placed them because we wanted to get some traction we needed to get some traction in our lives to get unstuck and i think that's a picture sometimes of our lives we're not maybe stuck in sand or in a tree but we can get stuck we can get stuck in life we can get stuck in relationships we can get stuck in our marriage stuck in in our jobs and our careers we get stuck in some place and no matter how hard we try no matter how hard we accelerate it feels like the wheels are just spinning and we're not getting any traction in our lives we find ourselves in a place where we feel paralyzed and mobilized maybe we just feel like we can't move on from something maybe we feel bored or frustrated maybe we're overwhelmed in some parts of our lives and we're stuck sometimes we can be stuck because we're underwhelmed There's just, we know there's more in us than what we're seeing and experiencing and we're stuck where we are. And that's where we find someone today in our passage in John chapter 5. Someone who's stuck, stuck in a circumstance, stuck in their suffering, stuck in their sickness and stuck in life. And we'll see how Jesus interacts with them to get them unstuck. This is a message that's been brewing with me for about three or four weeks now. And and so I really do feel it's a a message for us. It's a message for our church. It's a message for many of of you in the room this morning. 
And, and if you look at John uh, chapter 5 verse 1 with me, it says this. Sometimes late, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. And so you know good Jews had to go to the three main festivals of the year. Passover, uh, Pentecost and tabernacles uh, and, and, and there's crowds everywhere there's a hustle and bustle in the big city and then we go on to verse 2 now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool now the sheep gate was called the sheep gate because it was the gate that the sheep went through okay nothing too elaborate there we, as, as you know that they brought sheep to the temple to sacrifice this was the gate that the sheep went through uh, it's mentioned in the book of nehemiah uh, and it's interesting that the name uh, bethesda that we see here uh, in, in verse 2 now there was in jerusalem a sheep gate a pool which in aramaic is called bethesda which was surrounded by five colonies the name bethesda means house of mercy or house of grace whenever you see the name beth in the bible we we, we see that a number of times uh, jesus was born in beth lehem the house of bread beth means house and so beth Bethesda uh, means house of mercy or house of grace and it says there were five covered colonnades in hebrew and uh, numerology and we don't get too much into that because you can get weird if you go too much into numerology but five is the number of grace and so this is a house of mercy and grace what a beautiful picture of what the church is meant to be we are a bethesda we are a house of mercy and grace we're a place where the broken and the desperate and the needy and those without hope come and they find hope they find life they find joy they find peace they find purpose they find love they find healing they find forgiveness and they find friendship may hope church be a bethesda a house of mercy and grace and we're told about this pool that was there it was a place of refreshment it was a place of rest it was a place of washing it was kind of like honestly it was kind of like an ancient spa and, and the five covered colonnades provided shade from the hot sun during the day and over the years the, this pool at bethesda it began to attract a, a particular group of people look at the next verse here a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind the lame the paralyzed. Well, why did they come here? Why, why this particular place? If you have an NIV Bible, uh, you'll, see a little, you'll, you'll see that the, the Bible goes from verse 3 to verse 5 and skips verse 4, but you'll see a little letter in there. Uh, and it's because in some of the ancient manuscripts we don't have a verse 4. Um, but if you go down to the bottom, it'll tell you what verse 4 says. And actually, when we get to verse 7, we see that there was, over the years, there had built up some sort of myth, some sort of legend some sort of superstition about the pool um that that was based around the water in the pool look at look at verse four from time to time an angel of the lord would come down and stir the waters stir up the waters the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease so there was this myth this legend this superstition that every now and again maybe it was at the time of the festivals Maybe it was um, one, one preacher I thought was funny. He said, well, Jesus would have went to these festivals every year. So perhaps every year when Jesus was walking past, even as a boy, he stuck his finger in the pool. And, and after a while, Mary went, that was you again. I, we don't know because sometimes the angel of the Lord in the Bible actually refers to a, a, an image of, of Christ. But, but 
But somehow uh, there was this myth, this legend had developed that that certain times if you watched the water, the water would start to bubble, the water would start to stir, and the first one in got healed. We don't know if it's true. Could be, might not be. We don't know. We believe Jesus can heal in any way he wants. He could heal in this way. It seems likely perhaps that this story or myth or legend but had got embellished over time. Maybe once somebody had got healed and so this place had a reputation of a a place of healing. Maybe somebody once claimed they saw an angel. I, I saw an angel once and everybody said, oh, there's an angel comes down and they stir the water. Maybe something natural happened in the water. It was like one of those, you know, those bubbling springs sometimes that you see in different places because of the heat under the, under the surface of the earth. We don't know, but around this pool, this Bethesda had developed this superstition. This place had become attraction, an attraction where the most desperate, the most needy in society came, and they waited. What were they waiting for? The angel. Just They were waiting for that moment when the angel would come down and touch the water again. It had become a kind of lords. It was that sort of place, a place where people go for healing because of the rumors and the stories and the legends that had developed around it. And so every day the desperate would come and every day they would leave disappointed. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow it will happen. And technically this was a good place. Technically this was a good place. It was a place of refreshing pools and colonnades that brought shade. But also this good place had become a place that overpromised and underdelivered. And these people came day after day and, and they had something in common. They were all in a desperate state. They knew each other. Every day they probably had formed clubs, maybe bingo on a Tuesday, you know, um, you know we, we do crafts on a Wednesday. They all knew each other. They all had one thing in common, and that was that they had a, a desperate condition, the blind, the, the lame, the, the paralyzed. They were stuck in their situation, and it seemed that their condition was helpless and hopeless. And this pool was their only chance. If only, if only they could be closest to the pool. If only the angel would come down. If only the angel would touch the water. And if only I could make it into the water first. This might be my lucky day. And every morning they would have been carried there. And every evening somebody would have come and carried them home maybe uh, discouraged and disappointed, but they still had this glimmer, this sliver of hope that maybe, just maybe tomorrow might be different. And when you think about it, this, it almost feels like this system had been built up, this structure. I don't think the colonnades were probably there originally. I think the pool started and this rumor and this superstition built up and people kept coming and they thought, well, if they're going to keep coming, we may as well put them in the shade because they're getting sunburned as well as all the other things. They're getting red heads. And, 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 and so they built these colonnades, these five covered colonnades. This structure, this system had been put in place to make it as comfortable for them to come and, and, and so that they could come as often as possible. It would keep them coming back. It would keep them uh, one more time. And we tend to be wary of, of su- such superstition, don't we? we? We look at maybe people who go to those places like Lourdes and we think, goodness sake, catch yourself all, you know? But, but we don't know what it's like to be that desperate. And, 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 and if, you had a f- if you were sick, if you had a, a son or a daughter who was sick, you, you might just try it. Because when you're that desperate, you'll try anything. 
If you have a son or daughter or you're sick and you hear that somebody with your condition got healed in a place, you might just try it yourself. So before we roll our eyes too much, uh, you know, even in charismatic circles, we have those places. We have those faith healers, don't we? Let's be honest. We have those meetings, those, those big names in the Christian circle where if they're in town and we've got somebody who needs healed, we bring them to them. We have those churches on the other side of the world where we hear about the supernatural happen and we flock there because we want a touch from God. We want a breakthrough. We want a financial blessing. We want a supernatural experience. We have our own Bethesdas. We have our own pools. And we read about these places on social media and we watch the videos on Facebook and we we watch them on YouTube and we believe the hype. And so we go looking for the emotional high. And if we can just get touched, if if that guy, if if Bill Johnson or whoever, you know, or Benny Henner or whatever your person is, if they could just pray for you, then you would get your breakthrough. You would get your healing because we've heard the stories. You know, we've heard the stories that somebody went somewhere and next week their debts were all cancelled and I've got debts so if they could just pray for me, maybe my debts would all be cancelled and we go there desperately, come back and we've still got the debts. And, and, and we want this encounter and I've been to some of those places, I've gone to hear some of those preachers and, and you know what I've found, often it's not the people in places that build up the hype, it's the people who go. Because... They go desperate and it attracts desperate people and and that's okay. It's it's okay to be desperate. But sometimes our desperation leads to despair and discouragement and it just leads us deeper into a hole because we go to these places and quite honestly they haven't built them up but other people have built them up and they've over-promised but they under-deliver and we come back. And it feels like everybody in the meeting got touched apart from us. Have you ever been in one of those meetings? I have. I remember Toronto in the mid-90s. Some of you have no idea. There was a thing called the Toronto Blessing and you'd go into meetings and everybody would be having these incredible experiences with Jesus. I could be in a room with a thousand people who would be on the floor and I'd be standing there going, I feel nothing. Like I was, honestly, every single time I went to one of those meetings, everybody seemed to get touched by the power of God except me. And I used to think, why me? Why not? Or why not me? Like, what have they got that I haven't got? And so if you're one of those people who sometimes sees other people have, be encouraged. Sometimes it's not what God is doing on the outside. I used to say, it's not who you are when you're down there, it's who you are when you get back on your feet again that really matters. And so if you go down, brilliant. If you have those experiences, I am jealous of you, okay? I love, I've had one or two in my life, but I've been a Christian 27 years and one or two isn't an awful lot. And then there's other people who seem to have, you know, see angels every other day. And, and I'm like, flip sick, you know. I, like, I just, you know what? Some people have more encounters and some people are more open to those encounters than others. But, but sometimes I feel like everybody seems to be getting touched in the room apart from me. But you know what? Having a supernatural encounter, it is great, but it does not determine the depth of your relationship with Jesus. Okay, I've seen a lot of very shallow Christians have supernatural encounters. And I've seen a lot of very mature Christians have supernatural encounters. And it doesn't make a difference. It's who you are when you get back up on your feet. And it's who you are as you walk out your daily relationship with Jesus. And I understand why people go, I would probably go, like I say, if I was desperate too. And I believe in healings. I believe in miracles. I totally believe in them. But sometimes we put more faith in a place than we do in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes we put more faith in the big name healer or evangelist than we do in the name that is above every other name. And we, we put our faith in them and we're disappointed because no human, no place can do what only Jesus can do. This man sat, sat in, the, in the house of mercy every day. He sat in the house of mercy, but what happened? Mercy came to him in the form of a person called Jesus. He sat by the water every day, looking to get into the water, but who came to him? The water of life came to him. He sat looking for some supernatural, superstitious event, but when Jesus walked up, he looked very natural and normal, and he healed him. Look at the next verse. One who was there had been an invalid for 30 years. Eight years. There's a man there who's been in a, in a condition for 38 years. He can't walk. And we don't know if he was born with it. We don't know if he's 38 years old or if he's 50 years old and he, he, he had an accident when he was 12. We don't know what happened, but we know he's been in this condition for a very long time. That's all he knew. He couldn't imagine that life could ever be any different. In fact, you notice we never find out his name. We just know that he had a condition and he had it a long time. His identity was wrapped up in his infirmity. Every day he gathered with those who understood how he felt. They could sympathize, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, they got him. And we all want to be around people who get us, especially when we're going through. We want to be around people who, who understand, who have been through it, who can feel what we feel, who, 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 who get what we're going through. But what can happen is this. Sometimes when we spend too much time with people who are like what we are like, instead of helping us out of our condition, they can become enablers keeping us in our condition. When we lived in, in Dublin, the church we were in was in the, the area in Dublin that they first brought heroin in to the, the Republic. Uh, back in the 90s, they gave out uh, heroin free to kids for a few weeks, got them hooked. And, and so there was a huge... Every day I would look out of my office window, and I mean this, out of the day, every day I would look out of the church office window and see someone trying to find a vein to inject heroin into themselves just outside the church, in the old graveyard behind the church. Uh, and, but you know what I discovered? The heroin addicts all hung out together. Why? Because they supported one another in their addiction. There was something about hanging out together that made it okay. And we find exactly the same with gossips, don't we? Gossips tend to hang out with other gossips because they need people to gossip with. Negative people tend to hang out with negative people. Critical people hang out with critical people. Complainers hang out with complainers. Why? Because misery loves company. You know, and a little culture develops around it, a culture that supports people in their affliction. Uh, you know, and, and, and this can happen with, you know, and, and so we, we, what happens is over time, if we, if we gather other people, we, we build a little support group, we, we, we have a Facebook group, group we, we meet together to talk about our condition, we set up web pages, we watch documentaries and TV programs about our condition, we have conversations that are all focused on our condition, and we build this culture which supports our condition and sometimes keeps us in that place. You know, even... I was thinking about this really practically. Look at certain areas of our country where if you go into certain housing estates or certain areas, unemployment's, what, 95%? I, 
when I was at theological college, one summer, I, I, well, for two summers I worked for the Royal Mail, but one of them, I was a postman in, in some of the big housing estates in Belfast, and where literally probably 95% of the people were unemployed. And there's a culture has built up in those communities. A culture that says, why should I go out and work when I can sit at home all day, get money, watch Jeremy Kyle and watch people who look like my neighbours. And, 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 you know, and, but why would I? And there's a culture, and there almost becomes this pressure to conform over time, doesn't there? Because if you go out, if your neighbour goes out and gets a job and he's as able-bodied as you, that starts to make you feel uncomfortable. And so there's this pressure to conform almost. I'm not talking about people who are genuinely sick. I'm talking about people who are able-bodied and well-able to work but choose not to because there's this culture. And it sometimes goes back generations, doesn't it? My dad didn't work, my granddad didn't work, so why should I work? Why shouldn't I just stay at home all day? Uh, and, and there's a culture to conform. There's a pressure. And, everyone, and that, I think, can happen in, in different parts of our, our lives. Let's keep moving. And this next verse is where I really want to focus in the time that we have left. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? The first thing I want you to notice is this. Jesus sees the individual. He's in Jerusalem. There's a crowd, a massive crowd. It's one of the festivals. So there's a crowd there. Then there's a crowd of people around the, the, the pool. But Jesus notices the one. And I just want to say there's a crowd of people in this room, but Jesus notices you. Jesus notices the individual. Jesus notices the one. And we see this often in Jesus' ministry. There's a crowd of people grabbing him, and what does he say? Who touched me? Who touched me? He notices the individual. How does he know who to give attention to? How does he know? I mean, there's all these people need healing, and yet he heals one person. How does he know? I think if you go down the chapter, if you've got the Bible open, it'll be on the screen. Verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, verse 19, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because what the father does, the son also does. So Jesus lived in this constant communion with the father. And as he was walking around, he was looking through the eyes of the father. And he was looking for those people who the father sent. Go heal him. Go talk to her. The woman by the well, ask her for her drink. Somebody touched you. That blind man over there, go make some mud, spit on it and put it in his eyes. And Jesus is going, really, Father? You know, yes, I want you to do that. And he lived in this constant obedience, this constant awareness of what the Father was speaking to him, where the Father was leading him, what the Father was pointing out to him. And I think as Christians and as a church, that's what we have got to do. We have got to live in constant awareness of what the Father's doing. You know, we cannot meet everybody's needs, but we can meet some people's needs. We can't pray for everyone in the country who is sick to get well, but we can pray for the person at lunchtime in the canteen who the Father puts in front of us and whispers, offer to pray for them. We can't give money to everyone, but we can give money to the person. We can be generous with the person that the Spirit says, be generous, sir. Meet their needs. And that's how I'm trying to lead this church as your pastor. You know, there's so much need around us. There's so many things. There's so many projects. There's so many initiatives. There's so many things we could start, and there's so many things we could be involved in. But what I've told our leadership team and our, 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 our management team is this. Let's see where the Father's at work. 
Let's see where the Father's leading us. Let's see who the Father brings across our path. Let's see what the Spirit is doing around us. Let's look at where Jesus is already at work. And so that we are joining him in his mission. Rather than us steaming off and going, Jesus, would you actually get on board with us? So many Christians and churches get burnt out because they're doing their thing and trying to get Jesus to bless it. When Jesus is blessing something over here and just saying, church, will you get involved with it? Will you come along and be involved? And so what we'll be doing is we'll be going, God, where are you working in this community? Where are you working? What sort of people are you bringing in? What sort of people are you bringing across our path? Okay, Lord, is that where you want us to go? So Jesus focuses on the individual and look at what it says. He learned that he had been this way a long time. How did he learn this? That's the question. He learned that this guy had been this way for 38 years. How did he learn? He, he must have asked somebody. He learned that he had been this way. Maybe he got divine revelation. I don't know. He finds out this man has been in this way a long time. And only when he finds this out, only when he finds out this man has been this way a long time, does he ask what seems to be a completely ridiculous question. Do you want to get well? What a silly question. 38 years this man has been in this condition. Do you want to get well? Every day he comes down to this pool looking for a miracle. Do you want to get well? Why would Jesus ask a question when the answer is so obvious? It almost feels like an insensitive, cruel question, doesn't it? Like if you walked into Craigavon Hospital and you saw someone lying there who'd been in there for years and you said, do you want to get well? It would actually feel like you were being a little bit insensitive. Does he know something about this man? Does he know something about the human condition that perhaps we don't like to admit? Because there's something about it telling us when he learned that he had been this way for a long time, he asked him. It doesn't just say he asked him. He says when he learned he had been this way for a long time, then and only then he asked him, do you want to get well? You see, <coughs> sometimes we can be in a condition so long that we get comfortable in our condition. Sometimes we can be in a place of affliction for so long that we get comfortable in that place of affliction. Sometimes people say they want to change. They may even act as if they want to change. But sometimes the pain of change is more painful than staying where they are. If you live with something long enough, even though it's hurting you, or those around you, it can actually become part of you. And letting go of it becomes more painful than keeping it. As I was studying this message, I was listening to a pastor called Robert Morris who leads Gateway Church, and he was talking about his own pastor in the States. And they had a guy who was in a wheelchair. He wasn't paralyzed, but he had medical issues. And a larger guy in a wheelchair who every week would come up for prayer. 
Week after week, this guy would come up for prayer for healing and nothing would happen and he would go back and week after week. And Robert Moore said one day his pastor went down to him and said, do you actually want to get better? And the man said, no. Because if I got better, I would have to get a job. I would stop getting my benefits and I would stop getting all the attention from my family that I get. And Robert Moore said, look, I love you. Or Robert Morse's pastor said, I love you, but please don't keep coming up here for prayer if you don't want to get better. Why? Because Jesus will not bypass your will. And rarely, and I mean very rarely, will God work against your will. Very, very rarely will God work against what you really want for your life. God will not do something in your life that you really don't want him to do. Even if you say you want to change, even if you get prayer every week, if you do not want to change, nothing will happen. And I think God would say to some of us, I don't want to disturb you if you're comfortable where you already are. Stop praying for things that you don't really want. Different examples I could give for this. And I thought through about money and people saying I want to stop being in debt, but... They keep praying, but actually what they need to stop doing is just spending. But they want to spend, and so they don't want to go through the pain of not having the things. But then I thought about relationships, and particularly girls I've heard. I'm always treading the ice when I do this, but girls who say there's no good guys out there. Do you ever hear that? No decent guys out there. Every guy I go out with treats me badly and cheats on me. Then a good guy comes up. One who's got a job, loves God, all his own teeth, uh, and, and you know, doesn't live with his parents anymore when he's 47. You know, he, he's a good guy, and he asks her out, and if, well, maybe reluctantly she goes out with him at the end. She goes, he's too nice. <laughs> Have you heard that? Too nice. And then she ends up with a bad guy. What she says she wants and what she really wants are completely different. Sometimes what we think we want and what we actually want. So we're praying for something and God is saying, but I'm not giving you that because I know what you really want and it's not that. It's something else. When I lived in Lurgan, when I first moved to Lurgan to be cured in Shankill Parish, I, I was living on the Lock Road and when I moved into the house, both the front and the back garden had weeds, particularly the back garden was full of weeds. And I'm not much of a gardener, but I said to the vestry, I want rid of those weeds. Let's get rid of all the weeds. Let's plant new grass. And, and we planned to do it in that first summer, but we didn't get around to it because we were busy and things happen and life happens. And, and, and eventually, you know what happened? The weeds just stayed. But I cut them down all the time. I got into weed management for five years. Weed management. As long as they didn't become too destructive, too overgrown, too ugly, as long as they were kept at a certain level, I was fine to manage those weeds. Because the hassle of digging them out, the hassle of replanting, the hassle of of sowing new grass, all of that was too much hassle. And so I learned to manage my weeds. And some of us have things in our lives that when they first came into our lives, when they first started to afflict us, we thought, I'm not going to live with that. I'm not going to tolerate that. That's sucking the life out of me. I don't want those weeds in my heart. But over time, we have got into managing it. As long as it doesn't impact us too much, afflict us too much, or do too much damage, we will live with it because we've got into sin management. And we actually, the, the pain of dealing with it is greater than the pain of living with it. Sometimes we like the idea of God changing our circumstances 
more than we like the idea of God changing us. God won't do it against your will. He won't take you where you don't want to go. He wants you to participate with him in your healing. He wants you to activate with him what he has made available. But some of us have become comfortable in our condition. We've become addicted to our affliction. We've become addicted to the struggle. And we actually wouldn't know what to do if our lives got better. And so I want to ask, do you want to walk? Are you comfortable by the pool in the shade? Because look at how this man answers Jesus and we're nearly done. Sarah the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone goes down ahead of me. Notice something here. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the man doesn't say yes. He never says, yes, I want to be healed. He doesn't say, no, I don't want to be healed. He avoids the question. He fudges the question. He starts getting defensive and giving excuses as to why he's not been healed. He talks about what he has missed out on in his past. When the water stirred, he didn't make it on time. He blames others. No one would help me into the water. I really tried, but nobody would lift me. Nobody would help me. It's not my fault. It's their fault. I'm like this because of what others did to me. I'm like this because of what others have done to me. It's not the line of our culture. It's not my fault the way I am. It's the government's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my childhood's fault. It's that teacher's fault. It's always somebody else's fault because if it's somebody else's fault, we don't have to do. We are a victim. I don't have the support I need. Those people over there, he says, they're blocking my breakthrough. I'm like this because of what others did and what didn't, others didn't do. And maybe I'm harsh. But I can't help but think this, that maybe the others made it into the water because they wanted it just a little bit more than he did. Maybe they just wanted it more. Because let's be honest, how hard could it be? I mean, like, some of you won't see, like, like he's lying by the pool every day, okay? The water stirs. Like, how hard is that? Like, he just needs to roll in. Maybe others just wanted it a little bit more than he did. But if he got in, he would lose all his excuses and his victim mentality. He said, the whole system stacked against me. I'm a victim. And we can all think of reasons why our lives aren't the way we would like them to be. Excuses why we aren't living the way we could or should live. We can blame our circumstances. We can blame others. And you know what? Others have hurt us. You know, and we, we, sometimes we say things, you know, they hurt me so badly and that's why I can't trust somebody. They cheated on me and that's why I can never trust another guy or girl. That's why I, I, I'm so untrusted. They betrayed me. I had such a bad upbringing. I wasn't given the opportunities they got. I just have bad luck. I, I can't move on until they say sorry. I've invested too much in this to walk away. I, I, I can't forgive because that would be letting them off the hook. And we have excuses. And you know what? Many of those things I have just said are incredibly legitimate. Real bad things were done to you. Real bad things happened to you. But the problem is that these things are not helping you get unstuck. 
They're not helping you move forward. They're keeping you where they are. And this man has got stuck in a place where God never intended him to stay because look at what Jesus says. Then Jesus said to him, next verse, get up, exclamation mark, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Jesus doesn't say you're healed. He doesn't say your faith has made you well. He just says, get up. Get up. I hear your excuses. I hear what's wrong. I hear that your stories you tell yourself about why you are the way you are. Just get up. Get up. Three things. Get up. Whose responsibility was that? His. Nobody else was going to get him up. Get up. You have to do something. You have to make the first move. You have to take the first step. Get up. Then he says, pick up your mat. That thing that's on the ground that keeps you comfortable. Get off it because you're not going to go back sitting there anymore. And walk. Get up. Take up your mat and walk. In other words, get out of this culture that's keeping you where you are. Get away from these people who are helping you stay in this condition. There are some people that you just need to not be around as much. Move on from here and at once, next verse, at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. As he does what Jesus says, his obedience brings a miracle. And if you're going to get a miracle in your life, it will always be through following what Jesus says. And sometimes, you know why we get stuck? Because we haven't obeyed the last thing God told us to do. I meet many Christians who are stuck and they long for something different in their lives. And I say, what's the last thing God told you to do? And they tell me, and I say, did you do it? And they go, no. I didn't want to. It was too difficult. I chose not to. And they're stuck because they're waiting for God to come along and say something else. They're waiting for God to change his mind. For God to lower the bar a bit. Your breakthrough is always tied to your obedience. Let's keep going. We're nearly done. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you from carrying your mat. You'd think everyone would be celebrating and rejoicing. This guy's been paralyzed for 38 years and he's healed. And you'd think everybody would be doing the conga around the temple, but no. Look at what it says, the religious people, all they're concerned about is this guy's breaking religious laws because he's carrying his mat. Religious people, that is the thing about religious people, they're more concerned about the mat than they are about the miracle. Religious people totally miss the point. They major on the minor and they minor on the majors. This man has been healed and all they care about is you're carrying your mat. I love that Jesus asked the man to do something that wasn't lawful on the Sabbath to do. Why? Because Jesus is always more concerned with people's hearts and lives than he is with man-made rules and regulations. Religion keeps you stuck. Religion is a system of structures designed to keep you stuck. Because as long as you're stuck, the religious people in power have power over you. And as soon as you get unstuck, they lose their power. And that's why religious people get mad when you find the freedom that Christ has won for you. Religious people will not want you to find freedom because they lose their control. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about and some of you have exactly an idea what I'm talking about. Religious people get very mad when people find freedom in Christ. Verses 11 to 13. But he replied, the man 
who made me well, said to me, pick up your mat and walk. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. I'm going to finish here, actually. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. The man who made me well. The man who just healed him from something he had had for 38 years. Jesus has just done something incredible for him, but he doesn't even know it's Jesus. And sometimes God is at work in your life and you don't even recognize it's him. Sometimes things happen in your life and you aren't aware that it's actually God at work. You think it's just circumstance or coincidence or happenstance when actually it's God's providence. I want to ask you today, where are you stuck? There's an old U2 song, actually. I think if you go forward a few slides to stuck... Go forward. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Stuck in a moment. Remember that song by you too? You've got to stand up straight, carry your own weight. Doesn't that sound a bit like what Jesus said to this man? You've got to get yourself together. You've got stuck in a moment. Now you can't get out of it. Don't say that later will be better. In other words, don't keep putting off. You've got stuck in a moment, but you can't get out of it. And I think some of us have got stuck in a moment you know, this message has come out of my own experience. If I'm being really honest, I realized about a month ago I'd got stuck in a place in my life from the past. I'd got stuck in something that happened to me a number of years ago that had been deeply hurtful where people who I'd trusted had betrayed me and let me down and, and I'd got stuck there. And I, this, a season had moved on, but I was still back somewhere that God wasn't anymore. And I was nursing my heart. I was feeling the pain of it still. I was allowing it to, to affect my relationships. And I realized, just one day I just I sat there and I just went, I'm stuck. And I'm tired of being stuck here. And it was, a simple, it was just a revelation I had one day where I just said to myself, Craig, you're stuck. You've got stuck in this moment and you need to get out of it. And you need to stop praying about it. You need to stop talking about it. You need to stop thinking about it. And you just need to step out of stuck. And it meant having some conversations that I'd been avoiding. It meant going to some places that I hadn't wanted to go and being around some people that I hadn't wanted to be around. And it'll mean some more of that in the days ahead. But I I took steps. I want to tell you, I took some steps. I actually had to do something. I had to do something. And some of you are stuck. And I believe today God wants some of us to step out of stuck. That some of us aren't getting our healing because Jesus, it's not because Jesus doesn't want to heal us, it's because actually we just are not sure if we really want to be healed. And some of us are stuck in relationships, stuck in a job, stuck in a circumstance, an addiction, a situation, a problem, some unforgiveness. Some of us have, for me honestly, it was unforgiveness. It was me choosing not to forgive people because I was stuck in that place of their betrayal. And I, I, I still believe I was legitimate in feeling that. I'm not saying what they did was right. I'm just saying that I just can't stay stuck there. 
I can't allow what happened there to keep me stuck today because God is too much for me today for me to stay stuck in something that happened two years ago. Let's stand together. and Maybe the worship team could come up. And I know this won't apply to everybody, but for many of you, you will be able to identify a place where you've got stuck. Maybe an addiction, maybe a habit. But you just close your eyes with me for a minute and just... Just let's just invite the Holy Spirit just to, to show us if there's anywhere in our lives where we've got stuck. And most of you will know. Holy Spirit, is there anywhere where we are stuck? Where we have actually had something that we have done or something that has been done to us and we haven't been able to move on from it. And the Holy Spirit has said today, step out of stuck. Step out of stuck. But you need to take the first step. He will not go against your will. For some of you, this will mean going home and and writing an email, writing a message on on Messenger, maybe sending a text, maybe seeing somebody for coffee. Maybe for some of you, it'll just mean just... It actually might mean deleting some numbers from your phone for some of you. Maybe it'll mean stopping having some conversations about something that happened. Refusing to talk about it anymore. For me, it actually meant taking some people's calls when they called that had been avoiding the calls. Maybe that's what you need to do is just to stop avoiding conversations. Holy Spirit, would you come and help us to step out of stuck this morning? Help us to step out of stuck. We don't want to stay here any longer. There's too much in front of us to stay behind. There's a race set before us and we don't want to stay stuck. There's a race set before you. Let us run with perseverance the race set before us. Perseverance sometimes means just stepping out of stuck. Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to our hearts now? Jesus. Jesus, our Savior.